0: empower and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. And welcome back to our wonderful listeners. In today's podcast, we're going to be exploring chronic or persisting pain. And my guest today is Dr. Laura Katz. Welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So I thought probably the best place to start is kind of asking you, like, what got you into psychology? That's a great question.
1: Um, so I initially started my career thinking that I wanted to be a doctor and go into medicine and all that. So I began doing some research looking at factors that impact uh, surgical Um, outcomes at the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto. And what I noticed is I started to look at all the data and I realized that there's all these psychological and social environmental factors that really impacted surgical outcomes um, above and beyond, you know, just, you know, what techniques were being used or what um, position the patient was in. And so I started to notice that I was really interested in the psychology of human behavior and how that interacted with our health and our bodies um, and our overall lives. So that's kind of what got me into just in psychology. Interesting.
0: So uh, you didn't know exactly that that was the route uh, you were going to take. It just kind of sprung up as you were kind of going through your studying.
1: Exactly, so I started taking more and more psychology courses, and then I got to the end of my undergrad and realized that I wanted to apply for graduate school um, in clinical psychology, and kind of one opportunity led to another
0: and here I am And here we are having this discussion. <laughs> um, so I thought um what might be helpful for listeners is um just kind of talking a little bit about like what do psychologists do? Like, what kinds of treatment technique? Like, what, what, what does working with a psychologist look like?
1: Mm-hmm. And that can be a pretty varied question. Um, and a lot of people don't actually know what psychologists do. Um, so primarily what a psychologist does is the assessment and treatment of mental health Uh, issues and diagnoses. Um, So things like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, all that sort of thing. Um, So I have two very different roles because I work primarily in the hospital system, but I also do some private work. So in the hospital system, system, I work in a chronic pain clinic, and I do a lot of assessment with individuals to try to understand how their mental health needs impact um, their ability to cope and manage with their chronic and persistent pain. I also do lots of consultation and our team on how to best support patients in terms of their pain treatment. And I do a little bit of one-on-one treatment um, to help people learn skills and strategies to manage things like their mood and cope with their pain um, and work through anxiety. Uh, in my private work, I do is my work looks a little bit different, where it's very brief assessment and it's pretty much I'm doing an assessment to, to help treatment. Um, where I do lots of one-on-one therapy with people. And it's all about coping and processing through difficult um, areas in people's lives um, and essentially helping them live a better quality of life uh, that's more adjusted.
0: Amazing. Yeah. And it's super important, um, super important work. Um, What got you interested in working with persisting pain? So that
1: heads back to a lot of my research, especially in undergrad. Um, so one of the first labs that I volunteered in and worked as a research uh, assistant in was uh, a chronic pain lab. And I really started to see pain as kind of the pinnacle of the connection between the mind and the body. And that was super fascinating to see that I find pain is no more or less one part Uh, physical or psychological it really is the combination of both Um, and it's also such a universal human experience Uh, people from all cultures all ages all countries all times we all experience pain and I find that fascinating on how it unit unifies us as you know um, a species
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, of course pain is kind of an important biological process uh in the sense of, you know, protecting us from dangerous situations or situations where there could be potential harm uh and if, and you know, it's unpleasant, right? And I, I just I mm-hmm. also personally think it's really interesting how, you know, how different people cope with those unpleasant sensations because somebody could be like, you know, really injured and like not feel pain while somebody, you know, I mean, paper cuts, I don't know, like, I don't know about you, but those things hurt. (laughs) They hurt a lot. And they're just like these like little things. And, you know, and it's just interesting how the body processes that information. And of course, that involves the brain.
1: Exactly. And that's what's so fascinating about the experience of pain to me is that it really does combine both the mind and the body um and and so especially over the past 50 years or so when we've learned about how pain works in the body from both the gait control theory of pain and neuromodulation of pain we start to see how all of these factors interplay and you're right it's that classic example of you stub your toe or you get a paper cut and it's like the most pain you've ever felt but then all of a sudden you look down on your leg and you you realize there's this gash that's been bleeding or bruised and you haven't noticed it in a couple of hours. And then it really starts to hurt.
0: Yeah. The moment you notice, uh, notice it. I mean, I've certainly walked into corners of tables and initially it's like, ah, that's super painful. And then later on go, how did that bruise get there? (laughs) It's interesting how like the brain picks and chooses Mm -hmm. What, what to remember and, um, you know, what to keep at the forefront of, uh, the thought process. So yeah, I find it extremely fascinating, um, to try to understand that mind body link. Um, I'm curious kind of from your perspective, like when you're talking with clients, um, You know, like, how do you describe, like, chronic persisting pain? Like, how do you try to help somebody understand? And I I guess it's a a bit of a huge question, but maybe um, in a Reader's Digest version, like, how do you kind of talk to people about pain?
1: For sure. So I'll try my best because usually I have about an hour with patients or so, um, to go through all of this. And essentially we talk about the whole science of the neuromodulation of pain. And, um, it's a really complex and abstract concept. Um, and I think it's a disservice to not explain this to clients and patients because it's really important for people to actually understand, um, the nitty gritty of how pain works in their bodies in order to understand what's actually happening and how to properly cope with it. So we talk a lot about things like, um, pain doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong. So we start talking about that often with persistent pain, there's this miscommunication of chemical messengers or neurotransmitters in the body. So essentially your nervous system is in this state where it's sending out all these excitatory signals um, to increase your response to pain. Um, so your nervous system becomes sensitized and it has a higher threshold um so it's that whole issue of you know it's not really a tissue issue just because you know your body hurts doesn't mean that there's something wrong that needs attention it's often the nervous system in hyperdrive
0: absolutely i i I like the example that i've read and heard about about like a home alarm system right, and um you know, not, it's like a leaf blows by and it sets off the motion detector, which then sets off the alarm system. And one would think, oh, it's a burglar. And in this case, like tissue damage, but you know, maybe there was an initial injury, but all tissues do heal. Um, You know, so once the actual injury has healed and yet there's still pain, it becomes less about the tissue and more about that leaf blowing by that like, mim you know that just sets the alarm system sets the alarm system off and it's like there's like a miscommunication between the body Mm -hmm. and the brain about what's actually kind of happening um Absolutely. And then
1: because that system is so sensitized, um, so, you know, think of like that jacked up car with all of these fancy alarm systems to protect everything in the interior. You know, there's so many things that can trigger that alarm system. So we start to think that, you know, even thoughts and emotions can trigger that alarm system to set off those bells. Um, thinking about previous experiences of pain can set off those bells. Um, having a really bad day of low mood or poor sleep can set off those bells. So there's lots of everyday things that can really, you know, set up those alarm bells um, that can make people experience up with this pain when the nervous system's in that hyperdrive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you know, unpleasant sensations can be scary too, right? So you're Mm -hmm. experiencing these sensations and of course our natural human tendency is to want to, Get rid of them oh, um, sure. and sometimes uh, you know that's sometimes we need to be present in order to be able to notice that those sensations aren't always the same, mm-hmm.
1: that they're mm-hmm. ever
0: changing, um, but sometimes you know we get overwhelmed by those sensations, and we think they're there all the time in the same intensity um because we don't want to feel it. So we kind of block it away or um, ignore it or um, try to do any technique that is going to make it go away
1: Absolutely. And so that's exactly what we find. So with individuals with persistent or chronic pain, there's this real tendency to either, you know, hyper focus on that area, you know, really ruminate and, you know, people can't stop thinking about it, which makes sense because it sucks and it hurts. And it's totally the only thing you can think about. It takes up all of your concentration. Um, And at the same time, uh, often individuals will bounce the other side where they'll totally try to distract themselves avoid thinking about it do anything not to experience the sensation so there's that bouncing effect between uh focusing in with a lot of intensity to totally trying to distract yourself to not be present in the body and this is when a lot of problems happen because if we're not present in our bodies and we're either you know totally zoning into one part or dissociating and ignoring everything that happens we don't know how to actually cope and what to do and what's going to be helpful for our bodies, when we're going to push through our pain, when we're not going to do anything at all. And that leads to a lot of issues with either overdoing and pushing through pain or disuse and kind of disengaging and de- decompensating our body and our muscles.
0: Yeah, the, the avoidance behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so how do you, how do you describe the link between the physical and the mental?
1: I always say that, you know, we don't have two nervous systems. We don't have a physical nervous system and we don't have a mental nervous system. We're one person, one body, one nervous system. So I really do see the physical and the mental really as one. We're one being. Um, And so we know from a lot of times that if an individual is experiencing, let's say, a pain flare-up, they're way more likely to also have a flare of any mental health issues. And this isn't just because it's a negative experience and it makes them feel bad. There's all these biological markers that we can see in increased inflammation that are responsible for both of them at the same time. So I don't necessarily see them at all as different, but in fact, it's the same um, thing altogether.
0: Exactly. Well, I mean, they're still using the same chemical... Electrical signals um, mm-hmm. and of course, when we 're having an experience it 's going to release certain electrical chemical signals that like the body the other systems of the body uh, are going to respond. To that. And that's sometimes what makes it really challenging with things like, you know, um, I have pain in my abdomen, so I image my abdomen, but then I have pain in my shoulder, and then I have pain in my neck, and then I'm having these gut issues. And then it's like, well, none of the tests are coming back conclusive for a particular problem. Um, and the challenge is describing that they're all actually intertwined and responding to each other. Absolutely. Yep.
1: We're, we're all connected. It's likely, you know, the central sensitization, this nervous system arousal, which of course leads to both psychological, emotional uh, impact, as well as, you know, exacerbation of physical symptoms as well.
0: So, I have a question around you know somebody has pain but doesn't necessarily have any history of experiencing depression or anxiety let's just say like kind of live in a normal life you get you know let's say you know you've been in an accident something you know bad has happened you're in pain and then you start seeing like does do mental health it's kind of like a chicken or the egg is there mm-hmm. mental health present before but does mental health issues have to be present before somebody develops chronic pain or can chronic pain create mental health issues i'm not sure if i'm asking the best question here (laughs) no it's a a really
1: good and important question and the answer is yes and no and no and yes okay (laughs) yeah and you're right it's exactly the chicken or the egg scenario um there's a lot of individuals who, you know, have no mental health issues before. And then obviously when they're dealing with persistent pain, um, it's so taxing on both their minds and their bodies. And there's so many areas of their life that it impacts. It's not surprising that, individuals experience things like anxiety and depression, um, and all of that. Um, And we also know that individuals who do have pre-existing issues with mental health, like anxiety, depression, and then they go on to develop chronic pain, it's likely that those mental health issues are going to be worse off, uh, because they have more to deal with, more to cope with, and there's just more going on in their lives. Um, and we know that, you know, about 50 to 80% of individuals with chronic pain do experience some mental health issues. Um, and there's a recent study by, uh, Dean Tripp and colleagues that just came out that showed that about 40% of individuals with chronic pelvic pain, uh, experience chronic, uh, suicidal ideation. So mental health is a big issue in individuals with persistent pain, and it's something that we need to pay more attention to.
0: Absolutely. Um, do you get pushback from, like, have you, have you found any pushback, like when you're working with this population um, around, like, no, my thoughts don't have anything to do with my pain. It just hurts.
1: Yes, yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I often get two groups of people, so especially at the hospital. So one group where it's kind of like they're almost being pushed or blackmailed by the physician to come see the psychologist who keeps saying that they need to talk about their stuff with somebody. Um, and those are the people that are on the fence. Um, and there's a lot of people who are very much interested in seeing a psychologist because they know that their mental health is an issue and they're really struggling and want to learn ways to cope. Um, for the individual where there's pushback, I do a lot of motivational interviewing, and that's a technique where you're trying to help the individual sort of understand the pros and cons and, and increase their motivation and engagement in, you know, making a change and doing some different things in their life. Um, so I, I find with, when I get pushback from people, I do a lot of psychoeducation in terms of that neuromodulation and neuroscience of pain. And so I try to really tie in mental health and symptoms of things like anxiety and depression into that model and try to show them that, you know, when you're in a poor mood or you're feeling really anxious or feeling really stressed, uh, you're more likely to have more of those excitatory signals. So um, it's like all of these leads are blowing around that really sensitized alarm system in the car. Um, and I often relate it back and say, do you notice how when, you have a, when you've had a really, really stressful day, how's your pain level? And they are like, oh, it's so bad. My pain's the worst. I can't sleep. I have wicked migraines. So helping them understand that, you know, according to their experiences, you know, this relationship is actually, you know, it's, it's going in their favor. So they have to understand that when they're having issues with mental health, it's likely also going to exacerbate their pain experience as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you're having a bad day and you stub your toe for some reason, that hurts way more than if you were, you know, out with friends at a party or, you know, like socializing and you, you know, hit that corner of the desk. Like, it, it hurts momentarily and then is distracted by other, you know, other things. Um, and I think that's an important other versus, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about that because, you know, I, I try to sort of just help my clients understand that, you know, what they think, believe and, and feel about what's happening um, excites the nerves, right? Like It's like your okay. cup is really full of water and like one little um, extra droplet of water makes the cup overflow.
1: Absolutely. That's a great example. So every time you have a negative thought or you get that rush of panic in your body, that's pouring more water in the cup, <laughs> Yeah, which as it leads to overflowing, you know,
0: that's when the pain signal starts to begin. I want to talk now a little bit about pain catastrophizing. Um, can you explain what that is, and um, I,
1: is it really a really common concept.
0: Is it back? Having, yeah, we're having a little, we're having a little technological uh, blip here, but yes, we are back. Go ahead. Okay, so pain catastrophizing is essentially when
1: individuals are freaking out about their pain. So it's kind of like when the pain is getting, you know, to the person so much that they're experiencing a lot of negative thoughts and emotions. So uh, there's three factors that go into pain catastrophizing. So the first is magnification. So that's like, oh my God, it hurts so much. It's never going to stop your, um, it's that thought and emotional process of kind of blowing it up to so making a mountain out of a molehill. You really think about it, those sticky thoughts that you just can't get out of your mind, it's happening again and again and again, and you can't stop thinking. And then there's also this component of helplessness. So, this is when it's kind of like, it's never getting better, nothing will ever help me, and you feel totally helpless about your pain. So, a lot of individuals often experience some negative associations with that word catastrophizing because it can feel a little invalidating. Um, but that's kind of just like the clinical term. But catastrophizing is really, is really an important concept because it relates to how people are coping um, and outcomes and pain treatments and all that. And it's a totally valid experience that individuals experience um, because pain is a really uncomfortable, thing that we all go through and if it happens again and again and again it makes sense that you're going to start freaking out about it so I always like to validate um, clients and patients experiences of it to let them know that it's not just that you know it's such a bad thing and you're you're making a bigger deal but that this makes sense and it's adaptive and let's work together to figure out how we can start shifting your you know relationship with your thoughts and emotions about pain so we can decrease this experience for you.
0: So I'm going to just summarize quickly because I think we missed the second word. So we have magnification, Mm -hmm. rumination, so that's the, like, just thinking about it constantly and can't think about anything else, and then helplessness, feeling like um, you can't do uh, something about it. So those are the three things to pain catastrophizing. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's definitely... um, a normal human experience. Like you lose your job, for example. Like, yeah, that's like, I'm going to be very, very stressed out about it. Like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to support my family? Where am I going to find another job? What if I never find another job? And it's certainly a normal experience to have those thoughts, but I just, I think I, it's not good to stay there.
1: Exactly. And if you stay there, that's when you start to get into problems. That's when you're going to start to notice you're going to get symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, Often in that state, people are going to notice even more heightened pain. Um, So, you know, it's a totally adaptive experience. um, And it's also really important to start to shift that uh, because it can lead to issues with pain management and outcomes and getting into trouble in the future.
0: Uh, And can lead to the next topic, which is fear avoidant behavior, right? Because if you think this is like the worst pain you could possibly ever have and, you know, oh my God, like if I move and it gets worse and then I already can't cope with what I have, then you begin to um, stop doing things. Absolutely. And that's a
1: really adaptive and normal experience because if something hurts, you're going to avoid it or want to stop doing it because it's uncomfortable. And why would we want to do anything that makes us hurt? So essentially what ends up happening is, you know, something hurts. You experience some negative, you know, thoughts about it or some fear. Then you avoid the behavior. And then essentially that's going to lead to this disuse, disability, um, depression cycle, Um, where your body's decompensating, your mind's decompensating, um, and then you go to do something else, and it hurts again, and what do you know? You have even more negative thoughts because you're kind of proving that negative cycle true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, And so this is kind of, you want to move to the other part of the cycle where you're getting patients to actually start to decatastrophize and, and start to shift their thoughts about how much their pain hurts and how helpless they are. Um, and by doing that, you can allow them to, you know, start to be doing small movements, decrease their fear of movement, get into their body, start approaching activities and exposing them to, to things that are important to, in their lives. And essentially that leads to recovery.
0: Right. And re with the second, I always want to
1: say that, reengaging engaging That's always the key. We want people to be engaged in their lives in important and meaningful areas that they value. Um, and when going through a lot of these concepts, you know, catastrophizing and avoidance and all that, I always like to phrase it in a way that, you know, everything we do is adaptive. We're not going to do anything in our lives um, just because we have behaviors and we have thoughts because it's adaptive for our survival and it makes sense. The problem then becomes um, when these adaptive behaviors start to lead us in places that aren't so helpful in our lives. And that's when we have to start to take a look at it. So I really like to validate, you know, clients and patients to allow them to see that everything they're doing at one point made a lot of sense and then get them to see where that kind of took a road that's getting them into trouble.
0: Yeah. I, I sometimes like to think of it, or like an example I might use is like it, when you roll your ankle right? Initially in that acute phase, like I just injured myself, it hurts to walk on it. So I do need to take some time to allow mm-hmm. that tissue to, to heal. Right. So pain, right. Is kind of trying to keep me safe from like damaging myself further. Right. Um, And then mm-hmm. the ankle heals. And sometimes it's like the rest of the body never got the memo, right? Like, the, it didn't get the memo that the tissues now healed yet the nerves are still you know um pumping out these these signals, and then at that point you know um what was a good behavior then becomes an adaptive one as you're saying absolutely that's a great example what have you have you come across thing I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. Um, what have you found to be most helpful in the treatment of persisting pain?
1: I found the thing that the mo- that's the most helpful is this interdisciplinary, multifactorial, multimodal approach. And, and and so for anyone who's been listening, I think it's quite, you know, apparent that there's So many different factors and things that can impact one's experience of pain. It's not just medical. It's not just physical. It's not just emotional. It's not just social. It's so many of these different life, body, you know, and physiological factors that come into play. So I think treatment really needs to take that into account. Um, And that's why I really love working on my team in the hospital because we have a wide range of interprofessionals that all work together with the patient, um, you know, and their goals in mind in order to help them manage all different areas of their life and body uh, for for better pain outcomes in in management.
0: Yeah. And and of course, you know, you and I both attended the International Pelvic Pain Conference, right? And that's, you know, kind of the Mm -hmm. message that we're starting to get that, um, you know, it really is, it, it isn't just a one pill cure all treatment right it really needs to take yeah. every aspect of that person's lives uh because it's also existential right like why am i here what is my mm-hmm. purpose right you know so it, it, it it's Absolutely. it's it's the small thing that uh, it goes from small to extremely big and i think if you know getting or it just even screening right like screening for like are there mm-hmm. Thought processes that are not helpful. Are there beliefs that are not helpful? Are there movement patterns that are not helpful? Are there behaviors like really just screening um, and taking a look whether you think you may have something or not like it may even just be worthwhile to have that conversation with different practitioners just to see if anything comes up.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes, that ties so nicely back to one of the first questions you asked me about, you know, why I'm interested in pain and how I see it really as that pinnacle of the mind-body connection is because it's related to absolutely everything in a person's life, you know, including, you know, anticipations of the future to past experiences of maybe trauma that they've had in their life. I mean, it's not only present, it's future, past, it's, it's everything. Um, And I I think I really like that. Um, And that's why I enjoy working in this area because it's a bit of a puzzle. You know, you have to see all the different pieces and how they fit together. And it's abstract and it's messy. um, And I find that really fun and enjoyable.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So you are in the hospital um, and that's at McMaster University, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? For sure.
1: Um, so I was originally hired on to the degree pain clinic at McMaster University, um, at the hospital there, um, to start up, uh, a chronic pelvic pain program because that's what the majority of my master's and PhD research has been on. Um, so myself and pelvic floor physiotherapist, Adria Franson, together we've worked pretty hard over the past couple of years to develop this program. And it's a really nice interdisciplinary pain program. Um, and patients will come in once a week for eight weeks for about three hours each time, and it's group-based. And first they attend an orientation to just learn about the program, and if that sounds like a good fit, we'll do an assessment with them with both myself as the psychologist and Adria as the physiotherapist. Um, And the program, every time they come, there's three components that they go through. First, they have... um, Uh, We have a group pelvic floor physiotherapy class, so that's lots of like um, lengthening and stretching exercises, and it's essentially a pelvic floor release class. Um, They attend a psychoeducation class. Um, We also have a component of cognitive behavioral therapy and goal setting, um, and they finish each day with mindfulness. Um, and some of the topics, I can go through them pretty quickly. We have the signs of chronic pelvic pain, emotion regulation, trauma and stress and pain, um, communication, sexual intimacy, sleep, dealing with flare ups, activity education and pacing, and the anti-inflammatory diet for bladder and bowel management. Um, so that's essentially what our program is. And again, we're trying to, um, get at all those different pieces of the puzzle in the different areas of individuals lives to help them learn different coping skills um, you know to manage their pain day-to-day
0: amazing yeah it sounds really um, integrated and looking at all of Mm -hmm. all of those really important aspects now do clients have to like do they have to be referred in by a specialist or a doctor to be able to attend the program
1: yes and so right now we're only accepting referrals from OBGYNs and neurologists and we've had a lot of thought about why this is if we should accept you know referrals from family doctors or from community healthcare practitioners and the reason why we are sticking with specialists right now is because the last thing we want is for patients to have experienced symptoms for you know five or ten years without actually getting an appropriate assessment diagnosis and treatment we just don't want patients to kind of you know not had the due diligence of getting access to appropriate medical care. Um, And so it's kind of our back end way of making sure that if patients want to come to the program, um, they at least have had had to have had consultation with a specialist.
0: Right. Just to screen out, you know, potential, you know, medical emergencies or medical conditions that actually do require appropriate, you know, um, either surgical or medication type of you know, therapy uh, before they kind of come into the program.
1: Into a program. And also the fact that we know that women with chronic pelvic pain will go on average six to 11 years without getting proper medical assessment and treatment. So this is our way of trying to instigate the fact that women really do, um, you know, require Access to appropriate medical care. Um, And, you know, pelvic pain is something that's often taboo. Um, uh, A lot of family doctors don't know what to do with it, don't know how to assess for it. So we just don't want patients kind of getting, you know, pushed under the rug. We want to make sure they're actually getting appropriate
0: medical care. So if there's potentially, let's say, somebody listening who's experiencing pain and they, um, you know, are like, oh, this sounds like a really good program like I, I guess their first step should be like going to the family doctor obviously to start that conversation mm-hmm. get that assessment going um more than likely, they're going to get sent to either a urologist or an OBG, depending on what the particular symptoms are. Is there anything that they should mention to their physicians? Like if, if, it's a, if it's something that they want to attend, you know, they're saying, you know, I'm here to do an assessment to really figure out what's going on. You know, they're they're looking at tests, you know, hey, what about, you know, would the McMaster chronic I don't, I don't even know what the program's called. So um, would they, would they like, would they be able to bring it up with their physicians? Absolutely. So
1: yeah. So we call ourselves the interdisciplinary chronic pelvic pain program. Um, and I can also tell you where to access the referrals and some information about our program. Okay. Great. Um, I find, yeah, I find that, you know, for a lot of the, the women that we see, Um, The patients who have not yet been seen by a specialist physician, they really have no interest in coming to our program because they're still in the stage where they want to find out what's going on. They don't know what's happening in their body. They just want their symptoms to go away. Um, They're not interested in coming to our program. Um, It's really only after a couple of years where patients have been through multiple doctors, have tried lots of different kinds of treatments, have tried many different interventions and medications, and they're getting to the realization that, you know, there's probably some level of persistent pain that I'm always going to experience and I'm really struggling to cope with it in my life. I'm interested in learning some skills and strategies and exercises to live the best life that I can given my pain. And so um, if patients are kind of in that phase and You know, they have seen a specialist physician in the past. You can just get your family physician to fax one of those notes over to a referral. And how you can do that is you just Google Michael G. DeGroote Pain Clinic um, at Hamilton Health Sciences, and our website will come up really easily. And then there's a tab for the pelvic pain program that they can look up. And there's also a tab for referrals. And you can just print out that referral, and you and your physician can fill it out and fax it in.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Just in case, you know, somebody is in that space and they're ready to really explore, um, Mm -hmm. different options that they know where to access that information. Is there, yeah. Is there anything else that you, um, feel is important for people to either know about the program, or um, just like food for thought as it relates to you know persisting pain and what you do um, before we close off our episode. <laughs> um,
1: a couple of thoughts about our program. You know, if people who might be interested. You know, we've had a lot of success in the past. You know, we collect data before and after, so we're seeing lots of good improvement. So a little bit of encouragement. Uh, for patients out there who might be struggling with chronic pelvic pain for a very long time, um, you know, to get a referral um, and come to an orientation of ours and learn about our program, because there are tons of options out there. Um, And related to that, you know, I just want everyone to know, you know, to think again, back to that mind body connection, and the fact that there's so many different um, factors that really impact our understanding and our experience of pain. And so if this is something that's important to you and something that you've been struggling about, start to just have, make some notice and and gain some insight into what your triggers and what your different factors might be, because it's very different for you, for me, for everybody. Um, So it could be as simple as just start tracking on a piece of paper or in your phone, but the more insight you have, the better off you're going to be to cope. Um, So, you know, just being present and sticking with what's going on in your body um, and getting some insight into what's that process for yourself.
0: Yeah. I think that's a, a really good point about just starting to like look at and, you know, um, re, you know, not off the bat, do you always see patterns, but as you start mm. collecting information, maybe, you, you know, you're going to pick up on something that was seemingly unobvious that uh, over time becomes more, um, Obvious when you look back at your notes and it's like, "Oh, I write the same thing down multiple times, and I never made the connection that that might be the thing that triggers my flare up or um, triggers a, a spike in my uh, discomfort so great you got suggestion. it and and
1: that's one of the the nice things about um, a lot of what we do is the sense that. Sometimes it's really not rocket science. As soon as you get that information and you start to learn about those triggers, often that can be enough. And that really is the treatment because once you know that you can start making all these changes. So once you have that insight, you're well ahead of the way. So yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, share your knowledge and share about the program and hopefully uh, it's going to get to somebody who is really looking for something like this and then hopefully uh, set them up to be able to seek the help that they want or hopefully inspire somebody who, you know, may not have had pain for several years, but to start thinking about these other factors outside of just a physical component. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for, uh, you know, Coming on the show to educate us all about it.
1: For sure. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. And thank you again to all of our listeners. We appreciate um, you listening. And if you know anybody who maybe you know, experiencing discomfort or struggling, you know, share this with them because you never know who you might help with just a little piece of education. So make sure to pass it on. And of course, subscribe to the podcast so you get all the latest and greatest episodes. And until next time, I wish you a great day.